0: Thanks to LinkedIn for supporting Industry Focus. LinkedIn Jobs makes it easy to get matched with quality candidates who make the most sense for your role. Post a job today at linkedin.com/full and get $50 off your first job post. Welcome to Industry Focus, the show that dives into a different sector of the stock market every single day. Today is Wednesday, April the 17th, and we're talking healthcare. I'm your host Shannon Jones. And I am joined by healthcare guru, Todd Campbell. Todd, how are you?
1: I'm doing well up here in sunny New Hampshire. Happy to see that mud season hasn't yet arrived. Maybe we'll skip it this year and go straight to summer.
0: Hey, you never know. And it seems like that's happening more and more frequently. I think we'll probably hit 80, 90 degrees here in the next couple of weeks in Alexandria. Wow. Crazy. It is crazy. But uh, for today's topic, we've got some uh, less crazier updates to share with our listeners. Specifically, we've got news from across the sector, including merger updates, the diabetes stock wars, and, as always, marijuana earnings updates. Todd, let's dive right in. Uh, We promised our listeners that we would be following up on the soap opera that has been Celgene and Bristol-Myers Squibb. Of course, ticker symbols there, C-E-L-G and B-M-Y. Uh, Really, the news story here has been about the fate of this $74 billion merger, which came down to a shareholder meeting last week. There's been just so much politicking uh, on both sides of this debate and whether or not this deal should go through. You had a lot of very vocal shareholders saying that this was a deal that was very poorly conceived and ill-advised. Todd, what was the final verdict on this huge deal last
1: week? Maybe this deal is crazy, right? (laughs) We're talking (laughs) about things that are crazy. Maybe this deal was crazy. Yeah. So We talked in the show a few weeks back, and we said, okay, some big shareholders are really upset because they don't think that Bristol-Myers should be spending all this money on Celgene. They should just go it alone and maybe even become... Uh, an acquisition candidate rather than being being an acquirer. When all was said and done, um, we ended up having over 75% of Bristol-Myers shareholders vote in favor of the merger on April 12th, and virtually all of Celgene um, investors voting in favor of it. So, the deal is done. The decision is made. And these two companies will now combine in this into this massive behemoth with about $40 billion in combined annual revenue?
0: Yeah, it's going to be a, a massive company. I think one thing to keep in mind is there was a lot of back and forth on this deal. I think when you started to see these independent proxy advisors, um, ISS and Glass Lewis, step up to the plate and recommend that this deal move forward, that's when you started to see some of these activists like Starboard start to step back to actually make this deal happen. Really, in the investment community, when you have especially Glass-Lewis and ISS, when they speak, people tend to listen. And I think that's what you saw with this deal.
1: Well, and a lot of these shares are held by passive funds, you know, like the S&P 500 funds, et cetera. And they pretty much just vote the way the proxy advisors tell them to vote. So, yeah, you have active managers like Wellington and Starboard and some that own you know, meaningful amounts of shares. Um, but with so many shares of big companies being held by these passive funds, once those advisors come out and say, yeah, go for it, it's good. Um, the deal is pretty much a, a given that the, steel, the deal is going to get done. And, you know, I don't think it's necessarily a bad deal. I think this could be a very good deal. And Shannon, you know, not to bury the lead, I do plan on holding on to my shares of Bristol Myers that I'm getting in this deal as a refresher to listeners, as an owner, you're going to be getting $50 in cash, plus one share of Bristol Myers Squibb, and then a chance, depending on whether or not some FDA approvals go their way, a shot at an additional $9 uh, down the road from a a contingent value right. And
0: that $9 contingent value right, that's dependent upon approval across three different products. And that is a contingent value right that requires all three to get approved. Um, So certainly adds a bit more risk to seeing that one play out. But I think all in all, to your point, Todd, I think this is a deal that two companies combined do make sense. Again, in the biopharma space, a lot of these deals just don't make sense, and they seem to fall apart. Uh, we'll have to see if this deal will go the same way. But what you're getting here is a combined company that will be, among other among other things, a dominant
1: player in the oncology space, in particular. Biggest one, biggest one. Shin, I think they'll be number one. 20, 23 billion, roughly, in sales just from um, Opdivo, which is a Bristol Myers drug with about six point seven billion in annual revenue last year. Sprycel, Yervoy, two more uh, drugs that Bristol-Myers brings to the table in oncology. And then adding in genes Revlimid, which is a $10 billion drug. Pomelist, another drug worth $2 billion in sales. And Abraxane, a pancreatic cancer, and breast cancer drug with another billion dollars in sales. So yes, a very large player in oncology. Also, Shannon, a pretty big player in autoimmune disease because you know they're going to be able to now market both Orencia, which is Bristol Myers' drug that had about 2.7 billion in sales treating RA and psoriasis, and then the psoriasis drugs, uh, Tesla from Celgene, which had sales about 1.6 billion last year. So a pretty big player there as well. The other reason that I like this deal is because you do have all of these multiple shots and goals for fast approaching um, uh, uh, potential approvals for for drugs that you know arguably address. Multi-billion-dollar indications. You have azonamide, multiple sclerosis, Firdrotimide, and in myelofibrosis, BB2121, and multiple myeloma. We've talked a lot about that on the show in the past. LisoCell, Luspatercept. All these drugs have uh, billion-dollar-plus opportunities ahead of them if they can get across the finish line. And you know, I think that it, one of the reasons that I'm holding on to my shares is that you know Bristol Myers says that this isn't a dilutive deal. You know their earnings are going to grow every year from here through 2025. They have a chance for over two billion dollars in synergies from cost savings, and they think they're going to generate 45 billion in free cash flow over the first three years. So that's good for Bristol Myers dividend because remember Bristol Myers pays dividend where Celgene didn't. I think that yields probably you know somewhere north of three percent right now.
0: Yeah, and so looking forward, you're looking at six product launches, five coming from Cellgene specifically. That's 15 billion in potential total revenue over these next few years. I think one thing I'll be watching, of course, is the contingent value right. That is something that is tradable, but more importantly, like how I think those three drugs. I think the longest timeline is maybe 2021 um, that we'll have yeah, to March see. Yeah. yeah,
1: March 31, Yeah, March 2021.
0: 2021 there. So we'll have to wait some time on that. The other thing I'll be looking at, too, is now that this deal is moving forward, um, what programs will ultimately be uh, kicked to the curb, be put on the shelf? Because with a lot of these mergers... Even promising drug candidates sometimes just don't fit into the meshed organization and in terms of what they're looking for pipeline-wise. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out as well. But Todd, I'm glad that you mentioned it because you knew I was going to ask, are you going to hold? And it sounds like that's definitely a yes.
1: Yep, absolutely. I'm going to stick
0: around and see what happens. Great. So Let's turn our attention to the uh, second uh, big story, and it's really all about the diabetes war. Competition is heating up in the diabetes space, specifically among CGM players. Two heavy hitters, Dexcom, that's ticker symbol DXCM, and Abbott Labs, ticker symbol ABT. Todd, Abbott Labs is looking to step up the competition with a new product that could launch in the U.S. later this year. Before we dive into that, though, I think uh, maybe we, for our listeners who are new to the space,
1: what exactly is a CGM and what is Abbott actually looking to do? All right, so CGMs are continuous glucose monitors. And to understand continuous glucose monitors, it's helpful to understand diabetes. In diabetes, the pancreas either doesn't produce enough or any insulin, right, Insulin is necessary to break down, turn uh, glucose in the bloodstream into stored energy. So in type one, you're not producing any insulin. And in type two, you've developed a resistance to the insulin that you do produce. If you're not producing insulin enough insulin and your blood sugar gets heightened because of it, it can lead to all sorts of life-threatening complications. I mean, you can have nerve damage. You can develop cardiovascular disease. You can have vision loss. And in fact... Shannon, uh, of, the, uh, of people who are turning 50 who are also diabetic, the, on average, the life expectancy is shortened by about nine years. One of the ways that people think that you could, we might be able to improve upon those outcomes for diabetics is by better monitoring their blood sugar levels so that smarter decisions can be made about their insulin. And Continuous glucose monitors allow you to do that. You take a sensor. You put it on your body and then you're able to get real close to, not exactly, but real-time readings of your blood sugar levels that can then be used to make theoretically, um, decisions about your insulin that could prevent highs and prevent lows that may you know contribute to or speed up disease progression.
0: And the other important point is related to finger sticks. So for a lot of diabetics, they rely on frequent uh, finger sticks to determine the appropriate insulin dosing. And what these CGMs have been able to do is not only cut down on the number of finger sticks, but also, too, there's an accuracy and even just a convenience factor that plays into it as well. But uh, Abbott and Dexcom have been dueling in terms of technology. I'd have to say probably Dexcom, the more innovative of the two when it comes to CGMs. But uh, ultimately, Abbott is set to release what could be one of the more innovative approaches um, to the CGM market. Todd, what 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 should listeners know about their product?
1: All right. So Abbott Howardy has something on the market called the Freestyle Libre. And this was their their first generation of their latest um, CGM. And what's remarkable about this device is it does significantly reduce the finger stif- sticks that you were talking about. Remember, in the olden days, if you wanted to check your blood sugar, you had to keep Sticking your, you know, your finger to get a blood sample to to put it in the in the little testing thing to find out in the you know you needed some insulin. That's a very inefficient way of doing things, right? So you no longer need to do finger sticks for calibrating a uh, bit's machine um, or for uh, very extended long warm up times or to confirm that you need to dose your insulin. That's a huge advantage. The problem with the Freestyle Libre 1.0, as I'll call it, is it didn't include alarms that could highlight um, short-term highs or lows in your glucose. That's something that Dexcom's G5 and G6 incorporate. G5 and G6 from Dexcom have always been thought to be the, the premium product, and they carry a premium price. The Freestyle Libre is much cheaper right? So Last year, they launched version 2.0 of the Freestyle Libre. It includes those alarms that I was just saying was missing from 1.0. That Freestyle Libre 2.0 is not available yet in the U.S. However, a decision, or I should say the application, has been filed with the FDA for approval. If it is approved, then you're going to have a really big market share battle here as people try to decide, Am I willing to take some of the, the, the there's, there's still less features in the Libre 2? A little few features, but it's going to save me a lot of money, or do I want to stick with the Dexcom that I've been used to? And I think that that's created a lot of um, excitement for Abbott and concern about Dexcom. You know, will Dexcom be able to hold on to its status as the premier player from here?
0: And with the Freestyle Libre 2.0, some analysts are saying it could come at potentially um, an 80% discount to what Dexcom is offering. So, price, I think, is going to be a huge factor. I think the premium for Dexcom's products probably won't matter as much to those that are more, um, that require just more intensive insulin therapy and really do want the best of the best in terms of innovation and monitoring. But, Um, Ultimately, I think for those patients that require less intensive forms of therapy and are price sensitive are probably going to go for Abbott. One of the things that I think is important to note, though, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Todd, I really don't think this is a winner-takes-all market. I do think that there's space for multiple players, just given
1: the massive opportunity for diabetes right now. So stoked that you brought that up. Absolutely. Massive market. 30 million diabetics here in the U.S. alone, 400 million globally. 1 million plus uh, type 1 diabetics who are insulin intensive here in the U.S. alone. This is a big, big market. Abbott, I listened to their conference call this morning. Their diabetes sales grew 34% globally worldwide to 566 million in the first quarter. That's huge. U.S. sales were up 77%. Uh, to 152 million, they only have, I think, 1.2 million, 1.3 million users. So, think about the size of this addressable market, and where Abbott is right now, and where Dexcom is right now, and you're still talking about significant runway that I think could support Both of these players. DEXCOM's already guiding uh, conservatively for 2019. They grew very fast last year. I think they were up like 40 50% revenue. This year, they're saying that they're, you know, get growth about 14 or 15%. And I guarantee that's building in some of the threat. Um, that's approaching from the Freestyle Libre 2.0. But Dexcom also plans to roll out their G7, their next-generation one, in 2020, which could even be cheaper. And theoretically, that kickstarts the war all over again. So, this is going to be something that investors are going to want to watch for the next at least two years.
0: And on May 1st, I believe Dexcom is set to report their quarterly earnings. So I'm sure uh, management will be addressing really the competitive dynamics and landscape even more. So, we'll definitely have to tune in and keep our listeners up to date on all the latest on this war that uh, continues to play out. On the other side of the break, we've got marijuana earnings. But first, a quick note from our friends at LinkedIn. For your small business, naturally, you want to find the best person for the job odds are that person is on LinkedIn. Of course, here at The Motley Fool, we take hiring very seriously. We're always looking for the best of the best. We recently hired an editor that not only had the knowledge and skills to help onboard top talent, but is passionate and truly loves helping our writers and analysts grow and develop. This has and will continue to transform how we approach onboarding and hiring as a whole. What's great about LinkedIn Jobs is that it makes it easy to get matched with quality candidates who make the most sense for your role. LinkedIn Jobs uses knowledge of both hard skills and soft skills to match you with the people who fit your role the best. Matching lets you quickly get a group of the most relevant qualified candidates for your role. That way you can focus on the candidates you want to spend time talking to and make a quality hire you're excited about post a job today at linkedin.com/full and get $50 off your first job post that's linkedin.com/full terms and conditions apply. All right, we're back and we've got more marijuana earnings this time from uh, two big players. The first is Organogram Holdings, that's ticker symbol OGRMF and the second is Afria, that's ticker symbol APHA. Uh, Organogram right now is the second best performing Canadian marijuana stock so far this year, up 81% since the start of the new year versus the S&P, up about 16%. On the other hand, we've got Afria. It's up about 8% on the year, but fell pretty steeply after earnings came out on Monday. Let's dive into both of these companies, Todd. Uh, let's start with what sales and revenue look like for both of these. What were the headline numbers there?
1: All right, so Organogram delivered net rep marijuana revenue of 26.9 million and that's excluding excise taxes. Just as a quick sidebar if you will, Canada put excise taxes on marijuana last year, all of the major providers have decided to absorb those costs. So all the numbers that you see when you see net marijuana revenue in their press releases, that's what they're talking about, not including the excise taxes they collected and are absorbing, all right? So 26.9 million of that Recreational adult use sales were 24.5 million, and medical marijuana sales were 2.4 million. So that's organogram. Over at AFRIA, AFRIA put up sales of 73.6 million, but huge asterisk uh, associated with that sales figure. In the quarter, their recreational sales actually declined to just 7.2 million. That's down from 11 million in the pri- previous quarter. And their medical marijuana sales fell two percent uh, to ten point six million. So, what? Why did Afria's sales jump if their medical and their recreational sales soared? I mean, uh, were flat. That's because they went out and they bought a couple drug distributors last year—one in Germany and one in Argentina—incorporating those drug distributors' sales onto their onto their um, um, statements. Uh, is what was associated or what caused that big spike up in its revenue in the quarter?
0: Yeah. So some detail on that: Afria acquired CC Pharma, that was the drug distributor in Germany, and then in Argentina, um, APB was the one they acquired that added fifty-six million in distribution revenue to their results for the quarter. Um, so, we did see a boost in terms of sales related to that, but that actually put a bigger dent on margins, which brings us to the topic of profitability for both,
1: or as you can say, lack thereof of profitability. What did that look like, Todd? All right. So, Organigram is kind of unique in the industry because most of the big players have shifted away from indoor growing, which is typically associated with being more expensive way to grow marijuana to either greenhouses or or, or outdoor growing. Organogram is sticking with indoor growing, but well, they do it a little bit differently. They handle it like a three, three-decker bus, if you will. Um, they have a three-tier indoor grow system that they use. And as a result, they have some of the lowest- Um, cultivation costs per gram in the industry. Last quarter, cultivation costs per gram were only $0.85 per gram on an all-in basis. $0.85, that's crazy, Um, down from $1.48 in the previous quarter. The lower production costs did translate into a bigger gross profit. The gross profit was $16 On an adjusted basis, not including um, the changes in the fair value of biologics, um, something that I don't think is important to consider. So I I like using that X, X that number out. Uh, Their gross margin was 60%, which is just really good compared to what we've seen from these other marijuana stocks um, who've been investing heavily into their businesses and as a result of seeing their gross margins fall dramatically. They still lost money in the quarter, though, they lost 6.4 million.
0: And for Afria, and granted it's not a true apples to apples comparison with Organogram, but when you're looking at that cost per gram, they came in at right at uh, three seventy six, and ended up with a gross profit of thirteen million. But going back to talk about the distribution companies that they acquired. Even though it was a boost to sales, you did see pressure on margins. Matter of fact, I wouldn't even call it pressure, they just collapsed. It went from 47% in terms of gross margins down to 18%. Because these distribution companies just operate at a much lower margin. I do have to wonder, I know Afria is a company in transition right now. They're going through management changes and really trying to become much more of a global business. Um, but that was definitely something that stood out to me when you're looking at profitability for Afria. They ended up, net loss on the quarter, um, $108 million or $0.43 cents a share. And really, also, the other big story here was packaging cost management in their conference call did talk about expensive sourcing just to make sure that they had enough packaging on hand when adult use sales began and also uh, labor cost sounds like a short-term issue but something to certainly want to keep an eye on as well.
1: Yeah, so they yeah, those packaging costs doubled to $1.98 which is huge. I mean that's a big chunk of that all-in cost per gram that you mentioned earlier on. They do think that they have a plan that's going to take care of that. But there is still some inventory that's left over that has to get worked through. They're getting a little bit more uh, careful in the way that they package their products to use less materials. They're sourcing them from new vendors to try and save some money. So there should theoretically be some tailwinds that'll help profitability further on. You mentioned those acquisitions and the fact that they carry such much lower margins. The margins are 10 to 15 percent in that distribution uh, business. So the combination of declining marijuana revenue which is high margin uh, you know that tilted of course the revenue mix toward these low margin businesses that should theoretically be temporary as well um, as more uh, production ramps up at at and we'll get to that in a second as production wrap, ramps up then you know hopefully um, this company's profitability will get better. There was also in the $108 million um, loss they reported in the quarter, that also includes um, $58 million in impairment charges, including $50 million impairment charge associated with acquiring some assets in Latin America last last year, they decided that they had were carrying those on the books too at too high a price. So they lopped that down by 50 50 million.
0: And so with the legal marijuana market still in its infancy, Many of these growers still ramping up in terms of capacity. Obviously, funding um, is a key area to watch, and the sources of that funding. Uh, what do we see in terms of balance sheet? What did cash and debt look like across these two companies?
1: They're both fine. Um, they're spending a lot. They are spending a lot of money, but they, they neither of them worry me too much. Green and Graham has sixty-three million in cash, and it had thirteen million on the books in debt exiting the quarter. But they just signed a letter of intent to borrow 140 million. Uh, some of that is going to be used for expansion programs that boost production. We'll talk about that again in a second. Afria has 135 million in cash and about 77 million in the debt. So I think both of these companies are okay when it comes to having enough cash to to accomplish what they need to do to accomplish within the next, I'd say one to two years, and then we have to reevaluate. And so,
0: speaking of the next few years, when it comes to what the future looks like for both of them, really comes down to production capacity at the most foundational level. Uh, this last quarter, both of these companies were actually pretty much in lockstep in terms of production capacity, looking at around 35,000, 36,000 uh, kilogram production
1: capacity. What are they eyeballing in terms of future capacity, though? All right. One of the reasons that AFRIA's marijuana revenue declined is because they held back some harvesting to be able to have enough mother plants for an expansion they're doing on their big greenhouse, AFRIA One. AFRIA One massive expansion program just got approved by Health Canada in March. So they're now you know, starting to cultivate marijuana in that expansion program that increases their, um, their capacity to about 100, uh, where's 115,000. Kilos uh, run rate right now, which is a huge jump up. I think last year their produ- uh, last quarter, rather, their production was about twenty thousand. So they had capacity of thirty-six thousand, but they held some back, produced about twenty thousand run rate, and now they're jumping, like I said, to one hundred and fifteen thousand. At organogram, they just because of the expansion that they just got approved, they look like they're going to get to sixty-two thousand run rate. Uh, this month, growing to 89,000 kilos in September and 113,000 kilos in December. So, theoretically, both of these companies will exit 2019, roughly around the same, uh, similar to one another, at the 115,000 area. The one wild card, though, Shannon, is another greenhouse Afria is working on, trying to get approval from Health Canada on, and that's um, Afria Diamond. If that comes online, online, Afri Diamonds' capacity is going to jump to 255,000, and that should solidify it as the third largest grower in uh, in Canada.
0: Yeah, and production is really the name of the game here, especially for Organogram, because they just signed a letter of intent to supply cannabis to Quebec, which is the last of the Canadian provinces that they didn't already have a supply agreement in place with. And now this will basically make Organogram one of the three growers with a supply deal in place across all of the provinces. So that'll be huge. In addition, of course, October of this year will mark when Canada is expected to legalize edibles. Um Organigram, of course, focusing on the edibles, really building out automated equipment and production to be able to jump right into that. They're also looking at cannabis-infused beverages. They believe they've got a proprietary formulation that could basically um, make the effects of these cannabis-infused beverages happen a lot faster. So We'll have to see how all of that plays out. I know they're looking for a partner um, in that particular deal. We'll see if that happens. And then, I think, too, for AFRIA, really the name of the game for them moving forward is all about getting that product mix and cost um, in line. And because they are a company in transition, because you've got a new management team. I mean, this is a company that's gone through so much, really, just over the past few months. They dealt with short sellers attacking them, a hostile takeover bid, and now you've got new management that is trying to become a much more global operation. Um, We'll have to see what plays out with Afria, but to know that they're ramping up in the right ways is certainly an encouraging sign there.
1: Yeah, and I think that you know the one takeaway on AFRI would that you know if you listen to their conference call, one of the things they tr- they said over and over again is listen. If you take price per gram where it is today, and you look at what we have right now approved for peak production capacity, that gets us to a billion dollar run rate exiting 2020. You know that's that's pretty remarkable from where we are today.
0: Exactly. Well, that will do it for this week's Industry focused Healthcare Show. Thanks so much for tuning in. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Todd Campbell, I'm Shannon Jones. Thanks for listening and full on!